Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 53 through uh, 65. You can follow along with me in your own Bible, in the Pew Bible, or in the bulletin where it's been provided for you. Uh, I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. Uh, My name is Sean Slate, and I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad to have you because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing with your time this morning. Uh, For instance, you could be at home uh, trying to figure out your March Madness brackets that you're going to fill out uh, this evening, Uh, or you could be at home celebrating 2CE, the beginning of 2CE, uh, second year COVID era, or you could be away on, uh, or you could be away on spring break somewhere in Kansas, I don't know, but you're not, Uh, you're with us, and I do want to thank you for joining And whether you're here with us on this little corner of 17th and Highland, or whether you are joining us from home or an Airbnb in Minsk, uh, we really are glad you're here. And uh, the reality is that there's nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than worship Jesus and to consider his claims upon your life and to think about the beauty of his kingdom. And so I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. So welcome. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And so we watch basketball games, sit around fire pits, go on bike rides, go skateboarding at the skate park, read the Bible, pray together, all so that we can remind one another the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way that would spill out into the entire world, right? That's who we are. The people are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that during this season of Lent, we've been um, focusing in on the Passion Week of Jesus, that last week of Jesus's life. And this morning, what I want us to think about is the kingdom on trial, all right? The kingdom on trial. So with that in mind, let's look together. Mark chapter 14, verses 56, uh, 53 through 65. We'll include 56. And they, said, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. 
And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful uh, that you are a God who is not hidden nor are you silent, but you are one who truly delights to reveal yourself. Uh, that we would know that you're good and that we would know that you're true. And so, Father, you've done this in your word and by your Holy Spirit. And ultimately, you've done this in the person and work of Jesus. And so now over these next few moments, as we attend unto your word, we pray that you would attend unto us, that you would show us lovely things of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sociologists recently have said that over the last hundred years or so, especially following the great wars of the earliest 20th century, there has been a seismic shift in the way that Western culture thinks about the world and our place within it. And essentially, the observation is this, that in traditional cultures, uh, they always saw themselves as the antagonist. Humans saw themselves as the antagonist, and God or the divine as the protagonist. And so what this means is that when life would get confusing, when it would get out of control, when it would get all out of whack, uh, humanity would look to God. They would return to God to restore order and to give life and health and peace. Because God was the one to whom humanity must uh, return. And the reason for this was because there had been this deep-held belief that we live in God's world. And therefore, God is the one to whom we must answer. Uh, But in today's secular world, they say, uh, everything seems to have flipped. And now it seems as if uh, God is the antagonist, and we human beings are the protagonist. And the only way for us to find life and health and peace is for us to turn away from him and to turn in on ourselves. And so today, uh, the thing that we think we need freedom from uh, is God. That we need to be freed from religion to be able to find uh, our authentic true selves. And if God 
wants to now live in our world, then God must give an account account of himself to us, right? Uh, The vision of the world now is that God must give an answer to us. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, excellent essay, God in the Dock, or God on Trial, wrote about this when he said, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. The modern man is the judge and God is in the dock. And if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, then he is ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Right? God must answer to us. Well, whether it's ancient man or whether it's modern man, it seems to me that the testimony of the Bible and the testimony of history is that humanity has constantly attempted to put God in the dock. That humanity has constantly put God on trial and demanded that he answer to us. But the testimony of this text, the testimony of this event in Jesus' life, is that Jesus is the judge and we are not. That Jesus is the judge and we are not. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the judge and we are not. And we see this idea of a trial and the judge. Uh, We see this idea of witnesses and testimony running through the entire passage. In the Greek, the word for testimony, the Greek, the word for witness, they're the same word, and they're just repeated over and over again in the passage. You, you see it there in verse 55, they were seeking testimony against Jesus. You see it in verse 56, many bore false witness. You see it again in verse 56, their testimony didn't agree. You see it again in verse 57, son stood up and bore false witness. You see it again in verse 59, their testimony didn't agree. And then in verse 60, the high priest asked, what is it that these men testify against you? And then finally, in verse uh, 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? And here's the irony of the text. The the irony of the text is that it's just filled with false testimony and false witness. That all the witness, all the testimony, none of it agrees with one another. It's all contrived. It's all been stated to be false. And yet the high priest still says, what further witness do we need? This, This gathering of the high priest and scribes and the Pharisees They're not looking for the truth. They're not looking for understanding. What they are looking for is a conviction. They just want to judge Jesus. And this is the injustice of Jesus' trial, that with all of these false witnesses and with all of this false testimony, they still, verse 64, condemned him as deserving death. And this is exactly what they wanted. It's exactly why they gathered. You see in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And what was their goal in coming together? Well, it tells us in verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. And so what's happening here in this event is that this is the embodiment of Psalm 2. 
you've ever read all the way to the second psalm, uh, you'll know that it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They gather together uh, to plot and to scheme. They gather together against God and against his anointed, and so they put him on trial because what they really want is they just want him gone. They want nothing to do with him anymore. They want him dead. They want their lives to be freed from him. And therefore, they really don't care what is true. All they care about is hearing the false witnesses and the false evidence so that they can condemn him. And it doesn't matter if the witness is true or false, they just want it to come and they want him gone. And it seems to me that they're like those uh, who are scouring the internet trying to find that one article that will just agree with them. And finally they find that article from Greenland, a Greenland study finds, and it agrees with me. And uh, what's so sad, again, right, they're not concerned about wisdom, they're not concerned about truth, because in their mind they already knew. In their mind, they already knew what was true. They already knew that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. They already knew that Jesus couldn't be God. They already knew that they had to get rid of Jesus because they saw themselves as the protectors of the culture and the protectors of God and the protectors of his temple as if God can't protect himself. And so they condemned Jesus to death. And I wonder how different we are from them. It is easy to wag our fingers at them, but I wonder how different we are because it seems to me that many of us deep in our hearts believe that we know how God is supposed to work. And we know what God is supposed to do. And when God doesn't do what we think he ought to do, when God doesn't do those things we desire him to do, we demand answers from him. He's got to answer to us because what we know is what God is supposed to be and what God is supposed to do. And what is that? God exists to make my life comfortable and happy. God is supposed to remove suffering from my life. God is supposed to end poverty. God is supposed to be open and tolerant. He's supposed to be accepting of all things. God's not supposed to judge. He's he's not someone who could ever disagree with me. God should never be on the wrong side of history. God should never demand complete allegiance or commitment. God is really just supposed to be Uh, the one in the background who's sort of applauding for us and cheering for us and encouraging us and comforting us. He's supposed to pat us on the back as we go about our business and he should be gentle and unassuming and he should do everything in his power to keep us safe and healthy and happy and free. Because we know what God is supposed to be all about. We know what God is supposed to do because we're the judge. And when we see ourselves as the judge, we see ourselves as more righteous than God. And we look at God and we see that God is sort of outdated and he's old-fashioned in his old age. And is it not true that in our culture, God and his ways have become immoral? And we see ourselves as more righteous than God is. If you've read uh, The God Delusion, I know it's an old book, but Richard Dawkins in his book talks about the immorality of God. And listen to what he says. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. 
jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Those are some fancy words. Uh, But essentially what he's saying is that God is really just an immoral bully. And I think maybe we should ask ourselves, uh, are we actually the ones who are bullies? Are we the ones who, in our assumption to know what is good and right and just, and and our desire and, uh, and our arrogance of trying to control the world for ourselves, maybe we're the ones who've become unjust. And especially as we see ourselves as the preservers of culture and the preservers of freedom and the preservers of flourishing and the preservers of love. And out of that position, out of that kind of elevated position, elevated sense of self, uh, we have become a people who are willing to put God in the dock. And if we are willing to put God on trial, uh, what's going to stop us from putting one another on trial? I mean, if, if everyone is supposed to answer to me, and if I have to answer to no one, what will stop me from condemning anyone and everyone? David understood the horror of humanity's uh, judgment. You might remember that back in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David had sinned against God and he was given this option. You can either fall into the hands of man or you can fall into the hands of God. And here's what David said. I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. And what David was saying is, uh, let me not fall into the hands of man. Please let me fall into the hands of the Lord, because at least his hands are merciful. And I think that this is important, because uh, if there is anything that ought to work grace and patience into us is it not the fact that we must all stand before God in the end is there anything else that would work grace and patience into us other than the fact that we have got to stand before God in the end and when we stand before God all we have is his mercy all we have is his mercy and so here's the point Jesus is the judge and we are not Right, Jesus is the judge, and we are not. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the judge, and we are not. And I think one of the fascinating things about humanity is that uh, we are so quick to just twist God's word and to use God's word uh, to try to condemn him. This is a small detail, but I think it's fascinating. You'll notice in verse 57, and some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Okay, so if you've read the gospels before, you know that this sounds a lot like something Jesus might actually say. And in fact, he did say something like this, but he didn't say this. In John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. 
And then John makes the comment that Jesus was speaking about, about his body. Now, it's a small difference. I don't know if you heard it, but the difference is everything. Because Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. Jesus said, destroy the temple, as in you destroy the temple, and I will raise it up. And what they were deliberately doing was twisting God's word to make him appear to be someone that he wasn't. Someone violent and vindictive, someone who's just tearing down and all these sorts of things. And this is something that has been happening since the very beginning. Uh, it's how humanity's interacted with God and his word. If, if you remember, in the beginning, uh, God made the heavens and the earth, and everything that God made was good, and all that was good was given then as a gift. And so God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and you might remember what God said to them in Genesis chapter 2. He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now I want to be clear about what he said, so let's listen to this. He said, you can eat of all the trees, all the trees I've given you, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will surely die. Now, if you turn the page from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3, the snake slithers in, right? And the snake then corners Eve over in the produce section over near the figs. And, uh, and, and, uh, and he says to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so do you see how crafty the snake is being? Do you see how crafty the evil one is? He's, 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 uh, he's twisting God's word. He's close, but it's not right. God said, all the trees are yours. All this I give you, just not the one. And the serpent says, he didn't give you any of the trees, did he? And by doing this, what he's doing is he's inserting doubt into the world. Doubt in the trustworthiness of God's word. Doubt in the trustworthiness of God's witness. Doubt that God is good. Doubt that he loves us. Doubt that he can be trusted. So the woman in, uh, you know, rises up to try to defend God. Uh, and in doing so, she says things God didn't say either. Uh, she says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But again, God had never said anything about touching the fruit. And in all this twisting of God's word, what wound up happening is it inserted a lack of trust. A question about the testimony of God. And what that led to then was humanity taking and eating the fruit. And they took and they ate the fruit really because they wanted to be wise. And they wanted knowledge apart from God. And in doing this, what they were doing is they were standing up in judgment saying, we'll figure it out on, ourselves, on, our, on our own. We want to build our own world and we want life on our own terms. We want to be able to define good and evil for ourselves. And when God doesn't agree with us, we'll then stand up in judgment of him and we'll do what we want. But the witness of this text is that Jesus is actually the judge and we are not. Jesus is the judge, right, and we are not. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the judge, and we are not. 
So finally, they turn their questions to him. And you see this in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Now Jesus' silence here actually says everything. Because in his silence, Jesus is actually telling them who he is. Because in his silence, he's saying, I am the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, verse 7, the one of whom it was spoken. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And in his silence, Jesus is saying, I am that suffering servant. I am the one who will bear the transgressions of my people. I am the one who will suffer under the anger and under the violence of my people. And I will do all of this in order to reconcile my people to God and to one another. But they thought his silence was a little bit cheeky. And so in verse 61, uh, the high priest asked clearly. And he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And what he's asking here is this. He's saying, are you the long-expected Messiah? Are you the long-promised king? Are you the son of David who will rule and reign over the world and bring peace? Are you the one who has come to deliver your people? And then he says, are you the son of the blessed? Which is just another way of saying, because they didn't want to speak the, uh, the holy name. Are you the son of Yahweh? And Jesus' response here is absolutely incredible because Jesus says, verse 62, I am. And by saying I am, he's not just giving sort of a statement of affirmation. This is the great ego a me, the, the I am, the name of God. And in saying I am, he's, not, he's saying I'm not just the son of God, I am God. I am the blessed one. I am the one who has revealed myself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when I said, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you or sent me to you. And so what Jesus is saying is, I am not just the Christ. I am not just the son of the blessed. I am the blessed one who called Israel to myself, who delivered you out of slavery in Egypt, who made you a nation and a people who has blessed you and who dwells with you. I am the creator and the ruler of the world. He then goes on uh, to appositionally to spell this out more, verse 62, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And by saying this, he's saying that I'm the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the promised king. I'm the one who sits at God's right hand to rule and reign over all things. And by saying that he comes from God's right hand, he's claiming to be the one who is greater than David. He's claiming to be the embodiment of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And what he's saying while he's being judged is this, I'm greater than David, and I rule with God, and I will defeat all of my enemies. He goes even further saying, and you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And by saying this, he's saying, oh yeah, and by the way, uh, I am the Son of Man that Daniel saw all the way back in Daniel chapter 7. 
when he wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was present before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now I hope you hear what Jesus is doing here. In, in his answer he's saying, I'm the suffering servant. Uh, I, I'm Yahweh. I'm the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. I am the one who comes from the throne of God to earth on the clouds of heaven to judge the world. And the clouds that are being spoken of are not sort of water vapor clouds. These are the clouds that we see in the Old Testament. These are the the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory. This is the very presence of God. And therefore what Jesus is saying to those who are standing up in judgment over him. He's saying, I will come to the earth in the very glory of God. And I will judge the entire world. We've done a lot of biblical work here this morning, uh, but the purpose of this is to help you see the absurdity of this scene. That humanity rises up to judge the very one who will judge the earth. And as Jesus bears faithful testimony about who he is, notice their response, verse 64. They condemn him to death and they began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And here's the point that Jesus is making. He's saying, look, I'm the judge and you are not. And when they hear him say this, they can't handle it. Like they explode on him. Jesus is the judge, and we are not. Can you handle that? Can you deal with that? Can you say that? Jesus is the judge, and I am not. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the judge, and I am not. The irony of the text gets even thicker, uh, because in all of this, Jesus, the just judge, now bears the unjust judgment of humanity. And here's the reality. We can twist God's words. Uh, We can bear false witness against him. We can think that we are wiser and smarter and more advanced and more moral and more righteous than God. We can think that God owes us answers. We can think that God must give an account of his ways to us. We can even think that God must now fit into our world. And in this text, what Jesus is saying to us is, Oh, my dear friends. You do not know what you are doing. This is actually my world. And you must fit into it. And you can hate me. And you can judge me. And you can spit on me. And you can beat me. You can even kill me. But I will rise. And I will come again. And when I come again, I will come to judge the living and the dead and when I come you will actually stand before me and you can stand before me either in uh, your false testimony about this world 
Or you can stand before me in your false sense of self-righteousness. Or you can stand before me in your own wisdom. But in doing this, on that final day, you will prove yourself to be a fool. Or, when I come, you can stand with me. You can stand in me. And you will find life. That's what the table is about. As we come to the table this morning, we see the bread and the wine. And what we're reminded of is that Jesus gave himself uh, to us and he gave himself for us. As we see the bread, his body, we see the wine, his blood, we're reminded that Jesus bore our hatred. That Jesus bore our injustice, that he bore our anger and our violence, that his body was broken and his blood was poured out at the hands of humanity. And we did it all because we doubted his testimony, we doubted his goodness, we doubted his love, and we didn't think he was worthy of trusting, and so we went out to live for ourselves, seeking our own wisdom and building our own world. And because we as humans have done that, uh, we deserve to die under God's judgment, under his justice. But then God says to us, look again at the table. Look at my body and look at my blood. I gave them on your behalf to die in your place. I received your injustice so that you might be received by the Father. I've done this so that you would know that I'm good. I've done this because I made a promise to Abraham that I would do it. I've done this because I'm trustworthy. I've done this because I'm true to my word. And he says, take the bread and take the cup and eat and drink because I will come again. And when I come, I will judge the living and the dead and all who feed upon me will live. Because in me they find life. The table is telling us that Jesus is the judge and we are not. Jesus is the judge and we are not. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the judge and we are not. Therefore, I invite you to rise.